you're listening to Death of the Reader. It is our second week covering Agatha Christie's murder on the Orient Express here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. Our first book for 2020. We are covering the second part, as I said today. Oh my goodness, Herds. So much has happened. It's all the evidence. All the evidence. All of the interrogations. Every single one has been done. That's right. It took us 12 years, but we got there. I like how the parts are broken up, so it's like six... 15, 8. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. Look, it'll be a nice light uh, light read for next week at least. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I uh, I did appreciate the very thorough, uh, what's the term, D- disemboweling of yes. this entire cast. Oh, God. Like even the scenes, even the scenes that seem to have no significance, I'm like, there is a full chapter for yep. this. Why? It's insane. Yeah, I think when I was talking last week about why this book hasn't aged well, in my opinion, Mm. this section is why. There is just so much time spent on things that I do not think matter. Mm. And even though there are clues laden throughout, I do not think that this was the best way to present them. Right. Particularly when we get to some of the interviews where we just start going on about, oh, yes, you know, what... What what were you wearing at this time? Like obviously, it shows Poirot still picking apart the psyche, which is something yeah. I enjoy. But I do think that it was a very inefficient period. Okay. So, Herds, first of all, this uh, this sequence opens with mm. a map of the train, which you did yes. mention. Uh, I was so glad to get to study that thing in some in some detail. Yes. My goodness. We do have those dividing doors between them. Uh, we do have the little toilets, which... Yeah, are that's not, what T is. Not, not connecting them, but they are up in those corners there. So, you know, maybe if you're rapping on the mirror in your toilet, you'd be able to communicate via Morse code to the carriage next to you. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. I think, look, here we go. Morse code theory coming in live. That's right. Yeah. Who Who on this cast would know Morse code? Uh, the valet. No, the answer is Colonel Arbuthnot because his oh, name is Colonel. You're right. He is a Colonel. I was going to say the valet because he's a sociopath and he has too much time on his hands. He probably has learned every language by now, including Morse code. I mean, I would that would be a good second Look, answer, but I think the Colonel is the obvious one. I've been out for it. Well, to be fair, you have to understand Morse code in order to receive a message of it. So there you go. Also, isn't isn't it Major Armstrong was the the father of the do- the the girl that was slain? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Is the major on the train communicating oh through Morse oh code? Is he actually, is he actually Colonel Arbuthnot? Damn, I should have thought this through more and presented sh- it as a crackpot theory in the third part of the that show today. Good. That would be pretty good. There's still time. There's still time. <sighs> but oh you're in goodness. on it now. You're in on it. It's true. You can't surprise me now. Yeah. You can never be surprised on this show. So basically part two, as we've said, is just interviews with yeah. everyone in the cast um, I, I do like, as I said, and I will continue to say, Poirot's just, as you as you said, disembowelment of yeah. everyone's psyche. Look, I appreciate it. Here's the thing. I know, like, look, you, you may not appreciate because it's like, it's old fashioned. It's a little bit weird, but I appreciate the fact that we get a good solid breakdown. It makes note taking at least a little bit easier for me. That's good. It's yeah. good stuff. It's nice and segmented. That said, I would like it if Poirot would go back and question previous subjects on the things that the later people have said. You know, like the, what they do in that Knives Out thing. But apart from that, it's really great. Which is, which is very interesting because I particularly um, was fascinated in this by the way that Agatha Christie plays the murder mystery game so formally 
it feels like she had a checklist, perhaps written by her friend uh, Ronald <laughs> Knox, yep, sat yep. beside her, and she's like, "All right, well, now I've questioned the subjects, yep, uh, the suspects rather, so do, then move on now to I this." Now you got to show the evidence. Now you got to show the weapon. Now you got to show the baggage compartment. Like, yeah, it's it's literally like I would not have been surprised if she if if. Poirot had sat down and said, okay, so who's in compartment number one? Let's have them first. Oh, wait, that's me. Number two, that's Ratchet. <laughs> I'm looking at the map right now. Number three, though, you know, and they like gone up the oh, list. That's, that's Miss Hubbard for the record. That's Miss Hubbard, it is. Um, um, that'd be great. No, no. I, and like, I, I don't have a problem with it as such. I do think that it's one of the reasons that I'm not as keen on this novel as you know the best in the genre because you know if you were to present this novel to a modern day editor they'd be like all right well you can cut that and you can cut yeah, that yeah. and i would agree with them um but at, at the same time there is a certain charm to like going back to the golden age of detective fiction and just playing it by the book mm. uh, pun intended the other thing i did really love and it was present last time but it continues going through here is just agatha christie poking holes in the genre sure. like characters are mentioning i think there's at least four mentions in the book maybe we haven't gotten to all of them yet where they're like oh yes no this is just like a bad detective story <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it just doesn't I, I thought this would be when we figured it out by now uh, but no pot kettle black yeah um it's good stuff and and i particularly love you know Poirot coming in and going you know the impossible cannot have happened therefore the impossible must be possible in mm-hmm. spite of appearances yep you know Obviously, very uh-huh. self-aware. Yep. Um, and they're not they're not explicitly fourth wall breaks. They get dangerously close. It's leaning on the fourth wall, right? But, it's leaning yeah. on the fourth wall of the compartment that Poirot is, like, sleeping against. Yes, and also you know? we know that that can be opened oh from goodness. either side. It can, it can. And bolted from either side. Which so who exciting. knows? The fourth wall could collapse on us at any moment. Now, the other, the, thing, the other thing I was interested in mm. was last week I had written a note in this document that said, you know, Dragomirov is obviously meant to stand out amongst the cast as sure, like being I, I guess. a very forthright character. And you were like, Felix, that's nonsense. We're not even going to talk about that on the show. But then what? we come through and Dragomirov is the first, I believe, to confirm their direct connection yeah. to the Armstrong family. It's weird. I, I honestly... <sighs> she and the Count and the Countess, mm-hmm. like characters that I don't... F- feel like I don't feel confident in accusing in any way, shape or form, but they also seem to be like the most connected um, or rather uh, the princess is yeah. like, so we got the count and the countess and princess Dragomirov who are like all these very like high class and noble people, which is weird. Um, but yeah, I don't know which they don't really stand out to me that like group of characters. Um, princess Dragomirov is the like tied to the case clearly, but like she's an old lady How's she going to kill someone? Um, and I don't know. She just doesn't really stand out to me as like, I don't know. I don't feel like she'd be capable of murder, you know? Mm. I don't know. I'm, I don't, I don't know about capable of I'm murder. Not, she I'm obviously sure. is very strong in will. And I, I don't think sure. that stabbing someone with a knife is terribly difficult, especially I mean, I guess. if they're asleep. We'll get more into that in the last part. But before we, before we move on to our guest today, Herds, mm. I did want to talk about Hardman. The second detective. Oh my goodness, that man. He is so suspicious. No, but I, I do like the way that uh, Hardman comes in here and, you know, we're presented with the idea that he's a detective I, relatively late to what we know about the rest of the cast. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I like that he is being hired by the uh, by the, the accused because that definitely mm-hmm. flips the table where, you know, everyone else seems to be against the accused. He's the one that is, sure. you know, working with him. Yeah, well, that's, that's what's interesting is that we're, Presented with a villain who's who's been murdered effectively, 
and uh, this this detective is uh, working effectively. Huh? Yeah, effectively? Yes, he's been murdered. Okay. <laughs> You know what I mean? He's been murdered. <laughs> Shush you. I heard the black lung, okay? You gotta yeah, cut with that's, black. that's fair, fair. Um, But like, we have this detective character who is not actually doing any detectiving. Mm-hmm. They're doing bodyguarding. Yes. Um, although they seem to be terrible at their job. Definitely. Um, they literally were like- His client is in fact dead. Yeah. He's literally positioned himself down the very end of the carriage, uh, away from Ratchet, like- was all he's able to give to the as as evidence is that nobody has passed his carriage, which isn't very helpful considering that um, he goes off like his his compartment leads off to like the other coaches with characters yeah. that we haven't met. So that testimony really doesn't help us at all. It's very strange. Yeah, I was a little curious as to why you know doesn't McQueen get like a two person carriage and then and then somebody the, doesn't show up. Well, no, no, no. Well, yeah, I mean someone doesn't show up, which. You know, I feel like that's just a foil to get Poirot into the story. But, Maybe. you know, McQueen is in a two-person room, but then, you know, why why isn't he sharing that with a... With Hardman? With Hardman. I you know, don't why know. Why is Hardman not sharing that room with Ratchet himself? Obviously... Yeah, well, that, that's, the, that's the thing that makes me the most, like, suspicious of yeah. him. We'll get this... We'll get into the theories later on, but, like, why is Hardman distancing himself when he's acting more in the position of bodyguard mm-hmm. than, like, an actual detective? That doesn't make any sense. It's ludicrous. The whole thing stinks. I completely agree. Anyway. And you know what else stinks? Yeah. Your solution. Oh, um, wow. But we'll get wow. to that after our guest today. Wow. <laughs> I thought you were going to say our guest stunk. I was about to reprimand you for it. <laughs> I was very close, but that would be an unfair assessment of their character. It would be. It would be. Unless we just have surprise switched our guest with Oscar the Grouch. I was going to say, but we, I, could, we could, you know, throw someone into the ring who is smelly. <laughs> we could find someone cover them in manure and just throw them in the studio and we'd have to interview them. It'd be great. We'd have, a, we'd have an old speech like this all the time. Okay. That's right. Anyway, you're listening to Death of the Reader. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing Agatha Christie's murder on the Orient Express. And we'll be back in just a second. This is Flex and Herds bringing you Death of the Reader, your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are currently talking... Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie Part 2. And today we have joining us in the illustrious Death of the Reader Studios, Lighthouse Keeper Mr. Jimmy Van, tutor at Macquarie University, one of the English department members there. Welcome to the show, Jimmy. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. So, Jimmy, we are talking Murder on the Orient Express, held up as a paragon, <laughs> an icon in the world of murder mystery fiction, particularly the Golden Age. The Golden Age is, you know, at once hailed as the prime category of detective fiction works and established many of the common tropes that we expect from our murder mystery today. What in your experience is, you know, the exemplar trope that divine defines the age? Well, I think, I mean, there are lots of different types of tropes, but the commonality with all the tropes, uh, basically, uh, uh, revolve around the idea of fair play. Mm. So everything uh, about detective fiction during the golden age, uh, was about fair play and how do you go about, uh, make creating a puzzle, so that the readers can uh, read along and really enjoy the, the game of actually trying to solve uh, the case along with the detective. Now, a lot of these rules are basically things which are you know pretty self-explanatory, like you can't have a supernatural event, mm-hmm. so obviously you're not going to see any ghosts or um, monsters appearing in detective fiction. 
but you're also not going to have surprise things like they yeah. can't be. I mean, there's really specific rules like you can't have. Don't a, worry. Yeah. We are we are firm believers in the Father Ronald Knox yeah. school of detective fiction. Okay, excellent. Yeah, so you know you, you can't have a mysterious yeah. twin appear out of mm-hmm. nowhere to, to actually do the case. So there's that aspect of it, and I think that kind of defines what. Uh, Golden Age Detective Fiction was actually all about. Specifically, it was also about uh, creating a game yeah. that the, the reader can play along with. I mean, that was really, really important to uh, the Golden Age writers because they thought that um, there was a lot of fun to mm. playing detective, uh, to reading detective fiction. Uh, and the Golden Age was actually quite a fun period to, to read. And that's yeah. why I think it has lasted quite a long time. So a lot of people enjoy reading Golden Age fiction because it's just, um, it's it's one of the more, uh, the less strenuous, yeah. shall we say, work. I think uh, one of the things that we've noticed a lot going through detective age fiction is that it very much has the structure of a game. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of more modern and older murder mystery novels have it written out as a novel. So it goes mm. from act one, act two to act three, yep. whereas a lot of golden age novels, particularly Agatha Christie, go, you know, the event, the interrogation, the conclusion. Yeah. And it's very linearly structured like that. Yeah, I mean, it has a very tight structure. Um, and if you think about games like Cluedo, you mm. know, they're very much based on golden age detective tropes. So yeah. you have things such as the uh, the locked room murder mystery, which mm-hmm. um, Murder on the Honor Express is an example of. Uh, and you also have things such as the closed circle mystery. Yeah which again, the Golden Age, uh, Murder on the Orange Express is also an example of. Yeah. Um, so basically a group of people locked into a specific situation where they can't escape and they are the only suspect then um, yeah. as possible. As one thing that I've always found so fascinating about Cluedo, your example there, mm. is that they made a movie, which is called Clue because of the American <laughs> release of the game. Yeah. But apparently, and in you know, I saw it years ago, but I wasn't quite as informed then as I am now, that is actually a really good mystery film. And I'm so fascinated to see how they adapted the game into that, you know, using those structures and rules and methods of the genre. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, you know, if you look at a lot of tropes, so even things, if you think about the game, such as, you know, the bloody dagger, mm. that appears in the Murder on, Murder on the Orange Express. So uh, Mrs. Hubbard at one stage holds up the weapon, yeah. you know, so here's the bloody dagger. So who was the owner <laughs> of this bloody dagger? And, you know, why did it appear in my purse? Yeah. There's a lot of these different things that the readers will expect. Yeah. They're reading along, they're playing the game and they're thinking, okay, well, that's going to be a red herring. So I'm going to have to be careful how I read that particular sign. And so they're trying to put all the pieces together. Mm. I think one of the things that makes Agatha Christie particularly interesting is that even though she exemplifies a lot of these um, tropes and, uh, and these styles of the detective fiction, she also subverts them mm. as well. So she actually has a great time challenging a lot of these tropes. So, you know, without giving the, the details of the ending away, but the murder on the Orange Express is a classic example of yeah. her basically challenging one of those very, very specific tropes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we spoke about last week on the show, Herds, there's many points where Poirot, just as a detective in general, is very subversive of the standard because rather than making an assessment and concluding there, he'll make an assessment, someone will agree with him, and he'll challenge yeah. them agreeing with him, which is such a fascinating way to build characters mm-hmm. and has definitely been my favourite part of getting back into reading Christie. Yeah, A lot of those characters who you may think are one particular way towards the end turned out to be a completely different type mm. of character to be much smarter than they actually initially mm. seemed yeah. uh, and one that is actually witty enough to to do battle with Poirot, mm. Uh, mm. which is kind of the, the really interesting point. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I've got my own Devon ham. I'm watching it like, like a hawk. Um, now, I know, Jimmy, uh, you're actually a producer for a literature podcast, uh, much like your own, called From the Lighthouse, uh, and you work alongside a friend of the show, uh, Stephanie Russo. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, so basically uh, we're, we're big podcast fans, so we listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, and Stephanie had this idea one day to do our own podcast, mm-hmm. so to talk about literature and anything even remotely related to, to literature. So those who've listened to the show will know that sometimes we go into territories such as television and film, even though they're not quite <laughs> literary. Um, so one of our ongoing series at the moment is a review of crime podcasts. So we enjoy a lot of true crime podcasts. Uh, and so we listen to a lot of that and, and we do little reviews of those as well. But basically the show revolves around um, any literary ideas that we may wish to to discuss. So we, we bring people in to talk about certain um, uh, anniversaries, for mm. example, that may have occurred or certain books that are um, in flavour at the moment uh, or even certain ideas that we, we may wish to discuss. So it's a very general discussion yeah. and it's mostly Stephanie who runs the actual show. And <laughs> I'm actually not meant to be part of the show. I'm meant to be in the background and every now and then she keeps roping me in and so I've become more and more regular, which irritates that's me to no end. No, that's perfect. That's how the best shows happen. I'm <laughs> all down for producers being part of the cast. Yep, it's the yep. best kind of radio. They, sh- they should mic you up in the, in the, the studio next door so you can just comment in any time. It's perfect. So, Jimmy, I know you have an interest in uh, what you describe as the manifestation of myth in detective fiction. Mm-hmm. In, in our experience, you know, and you've brought up, uh, you know, Father Ronald Knox's rules, many detective fiction writers will present their crimes in, an, uh, in, in a way that seems impossible, you know, much like a myth. Mm. You know, how do you see authors presenting myth in our dearly beloved whodunits compared to, you know, the strictured rules of the genre and how you balance that fair play between, you know, the impossibility of the crime? Yeah, I mean, uh, going back to the whole fair play thing a little bit, I think um, most uh, major fans of uh, detective fiction will take that rule with a bit of scepticism. Yeah. You know, so yes, you should play fair, but to be honest, most people don't actually read a detective <laughs> fiction thinking I'll be able to solve this case immediately. There is that aspect of it. Uh, and I think, you know, going back to the whole playful thing, we should look at these fiction mm. as very playful fiction. That's kind of the mm. fun of it. We like to be full. We like to escape into this world where we believe that we can actually mm. solve the case even though we can't really. Um, the, the actual myth element itself, my research mainly focused on the trickster figure yeah. as um, embodied by the detective figure as well. So one of the things I looked at in particular are archetypes. So there are certain mythic archetypes that have carried through times and one of the mythic archetypes I believe um, that manifests in detective fiction is the trickster. Mm -hmm. So the detective is a very trickster-like figure. You know, he's somebody who likes to um, rile things up. He likes to, you know, uh, stir the the status quo. Um, He's somebody who doesn't quite fit in. So if you think about Perot, he's a really, he's he's a typical trickster figure because he's an outsider for one. He's Belgian. He's not even English. And there he is in in an English setting for the most part, trying to solve those cases. Uh, And he's also someone who's very amoral, which tricksters very much are. So for a a trickster and a detective, it doesn't actually matter uh, the outcome of the case itself. What matters to him or her is that they can actually solve the case. Like it, it doesn't even matter. And in some cases, they will actually uh, do the immoral thing and not report the criminal. Uh, and in, in some drastic cases, they may even kill the yeah. criminal as well. Mm. So 
they are they don't play by the same rules as other people do. And I think when we look at detective fiction, especially golden age detective fiction as well, we need to think about some of those ideas that the detective is somebody who tests some of those moral grounds. And a, a novel like um, Murder on the Air Express does test that. It does test the idea of justice. Mm. So where exactly does justice reside? I mean, by the end of the, uh, the story, without giving anything away, I think most of us are quite happy with the way it, it ends, yeah. even though it's not a typical, you know, um, moral um, ending as such. There are moral implications to the story, but that's where the trickster really fits in because yeah. the trickster can do that. But if you have a really, really moral figure like a police figure or you know, seemingly moral figure, yeah. like a police figure, they have to do the moral thing. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. If uh, if people want to check out From the Lighthouse, where's the best place to catch it? Uh, so come to our website at fromthelighthouse.org um, or you can uh, subscribe to us on any um, podcast catches like iTunes or Podbeans or Pod, um, Pocket Cast, you know, so whatever you like using. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, you're listening to Death of the Reader. We are talking part two of Murder on the Orient Express by Ag- Agatha Christie, and we will be back in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are still discussing a murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie, part two. Herds, it is time to get your solutions on the table. All right, I think I think I'm ready. I think I have several murderers. I disagree. On the cards. I I agree. I agree with myself. Oh, I have to. okay. My well, that's job. good. That's good. I think I think I've got it locked down. It's going to be a bit of an experiment because this whole thing seems ludicrous to me. This entire story is contradictory mm-hmm. and insane. Well, earlier on the show, I was talking about how obviously Morse code was going to be a big part of the solution yes. here. Um, I have to say there is no Morse code. I completely disagree. <laughs> what do you think, pray tell, Miss Hubbard's bell was ringing for? To, but, to call the conductor? You don't think that you think that was Morse code? Absolutely. No, no. Pyro no. heard the bell ringing no. constantly, and it took a moment for the conductor to come. Far which too means obvious. the conductor was mm-hmm. over in the next carriage writing down, writing saying, down, writing down what he thought right. the Morse code signal well, was. Look. And then to keep up appearances, once he thought, oh goodness, what if that works somebody up? Then he comes into the next carriage. True, true. I am suggesting to you that either working with in the next carriage or himself being Michelle uh-huh. is Major Armstrong. I don't know that that's accurate. I think he was far too nervous to be Major Armstrong. Also, I think Major Armstrong would be a bit older than this guy. That's the impression that's, I that's get. That's why I added I the proviso that it, you know, someone working with. Look, maybe a long lost brother of the deceased, little Miss Armstrong. That's I mean, possible. That is also I'm not a putting that. I'm not putting that out of my mind just yet. Uh-huh. Um, but I will I will walk you through some of my thoughts. Okay. I am slightly disappointed to learn that there was a passkey the entire time because I'll let you know on the last part, the thing that I put the most thought into was like, what are all the different ways you can get around the train? Let's like look at this and that. Uh-huh. Entirely useless. There's a passkey. It doesn't matter. Literally does not matter. Um, I don't know why you why the key is the defining factor for that though. Because they got a they got a passkey, they can just go wherever they want. It's but the room was chained and bolted. I think that there's a whole bunch of accomplices in here is the problem that I'm having, and that's it's insane. Mm-hmm. So I'm still pretty confident in Debenham uh, being involved in the killing. I'm less confident about Arbuthnot yeah. because, um, as pointed out last time, there are a lot of clues in there that seem like they've been planted. 
um, in particular the the scarf and the the pipe cleaner. Yeah, not an actual pipe, but a pipe cleaner. And the only person that that pipe cleaner points to is Arbuthnot. Um, I think that that's intentional. I think yeah. that there's like some confusion going on there. I think that this thing has been intentionally put here to point towards someone who like has a uh, McQueen covering for him. Mm-hmm. I think that instead, if I have to pick a, a male killer, I think it's more likely to be the valet. Uh, purely because he was a sociopath. Third time I said it in this episode, he's a sociopath in that interview. All right. Um, Check the, off your bingo cards, everyone. The problem with that, the problem with that is that that means the Italian is in on it because they're both covering for each other. Yes. Which means that we have six characters on the train who are currently involved. And as you say, uh, the conductor is also there and Hardman is also watching the corridor, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have this Wagon Lee uniform. Yes. I think that the uniform and the pass key have actually been procured by, I, I think it might be Michelle uh-huh. who's like procured this thing for Goodness. the killer. I, I find that very interesting, especially considering how nervous he is. And I also think the yes, thing that makes, makes this fall apart the most is just that everyone you seem to suspect has very clearly been against, you know, the act of murder in a way that is, like, passionate and not judged to be, um, you know not judged to be insincere by Poirot. Sure. Because that seems like the kind of thing that he'd point out. If anything, it's all of the characters you haven't pointed out who are the ones that are like, oh, yeah, that guy, he had it coming. Well, that's what I find so suspicious. That's why I think it's weird. So you've ended up with all of the least suspicious characters being the statistically most suspicious and all of the most... God. Hurt, yes. what a mess this you've is, made for I know. yourself. This is the problem that I'm having here. What are you here? doing? How have you made a solution this messy? Okay, Herds, the way I normally go through murder uh-huh. mysteries is uh-huh. I will go through and I will go through the list of characters and I'll say, if it was this person, how have they done it? No, none and of that. None of that. This the is thing nonsense. you've ended up with yourself here is that by having this many characters, you have, to the power of six, increased the problem. No, I have. <laughs> Here's the thing. The problem is that Poirot uh, only once in the... In fact, I don't even... He only looks out the door once in yes. that entire night. So if I believe that this many characters are in on this crime, that it is incredibly easy to fake not only evidence, but the events of that night. Okay. Like, if I were playing this murder, I would get the conductor to be like, yo, nobody come up into this carriage. The wagon restaurant is off limits. <laughs> so fire has it. Pretty much. <laughs> like... That's that's the impression that I'm getting. Because like we're in the frontmost car, the likelihood of somebody from one of the back carriages coming down here is mm. zero to nothing. Because that's the thing. This is the thing that stood out to me. Um, is that we when we're giving the description of the stab wounds, yes. we're told that they are male and female and strong and weak and like unsure and scraping yes. and like and you said there were twelve wounds. Yes. There are twelve passengers apart from Hercule and Ratchet. In this train. It is uh, it is a curious one, Herds. I think you may have gone completely off the rails. I may have gone one. completely off the rails, but I don't see anything else. For someone that is such a traditionalist like Agatha Christie, why on earth would this story go in and do something as ludicrous as that? And how how does this produce a fair play mystery? We already know from, you know, both Knox and Van Dyne that they are fans of the single, you know, the single sure. culprit story. And I'm not saying 
I'm not saying that a multiple culprit story is a bad thing because sure. even Van Dyne demonstrated in one unspecified of his stories uh-huh. that it was a it was a functional functional part. I think this is pushing it a bit. A I don't think bit. so. I think so because we can still, uh, if we want to have one murderer, we just have whoever stabbed him first is the murderer. But I think that what? Uh, I yeah okay like because that's the person who kills him. I think that this is a ruse. I think this this is like all the passengers in the car except for Poirot. That's why McQueen is so like upset. He's like, whoa, why are you why are you here, Poirot, instead of some other man that I was expecting? Because this is like some ruse that the conductor is like overseeing and all the passengers are going through and just stabbing. Okay, the thing that I'm most confused about here, Birds, is that I can understand how, given how much of a mess all of these alibis are. It's contradicting. I think that's the point. Yes, I can can follow you that far. Yes. However, I cannot jump off this cliff with you. You have to. Because what the hell do these people have to do with the Armstrong case? I think, as I was saying last week, I think that the valet and McQueen are working for him and they don't like him. I think that the Italian has been bought off. Um, we know that the uh, Princess Dromirov like knew the Armstrong people. I think, I think this is actually something I neglected to say last week. But there was a maid who like committed suicide. I think that the the, the I think she's a Swedish maid. The, the the maid of the princess. Okay. In this, I think she's related to her somehow. There's some crazy nonsense right. going on there. Look, I cannot explain to you what the entire motivation is here, but I think that. Uh, I think that Debenham has some history with Ratchet. Maybe they're a thing. Uh-huh. I don't know. And Arbuthnot is, of course, tied to her because I think he likes her. Okay. Like, if it turns out that these are all characters who have had their kids or loved ones taken by Cassetti at one point or another, that, you know what? That's that's what I'm going to put money on. I'm going right. to put money on that. All these characters have, like, had someone taken from them by Cassetti at one point or another. And he's, like, a globe-trotting all evil right. villain. That's it. So Throw it in. I, so, so you're going with, there are 12 people. Yes. You're going for everyone but the conductor, Poirot, and Ratchet. Yes, all 12 of them. Okay. And your motive is three separate incidents that Ratchet is tying together. <laughs> I don't look. I'm not. I'm. The why. Just give me a is, yes or no. The why is killing me. Just give me um, a yes or no. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. Right. I think that these are separate incidents. I think that some of these characters know each other. Some of them don't, but they've all come together with their like hatred of Cassetti, and they want to. They want to get him in. They want to get him with a knife, um, which we of course find in Mrs. Hubbard's room, I which will, is ridiculous, uh, by the way. I will. If if both of these are true herds, you can take two damn points. I'll take it because you know this is nuts. I know it's nuts. This is honestly insane. Look, I'm doing my best here. All right. Well, anyway, uh, you're listening to Death of the Reader. We'll that see. is part two of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. We will be back next week to determine whether Herds is right or not. I'm so nervous. I'm like sweating. Oh my goodness. Get me out of here. I'm a celebrity. (laughs) (laughs) This is 2SER. You're listening to Death of the Reader.